0: I always uh, speak uh, about how design has incredible value to advocate. So, advocacy by design. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City Conversations on how we live, where we live.
1: Uh, Mia Lair, landscape architect, who has been central to the reshaping of Los Angeles over the past uh, several decades. Mia, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to see you again. To begin with, I know you've been engaged for many years through your uh, through your practice on a variety of initiatives, um, notably um, focusing on questions of water in Southern California. I know recently you've been engaged in a project looking at uh, what you've referred to as LA's uh, forgotten waterways in the LA basin. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yes, so one of the wonderful discoveries of the last couple years by the county um, and also the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy was the, the fact that even though we have ser- three large rivers that go through the LA Basin, that somehow those stems of rivers had been studied, but the tributaries have, had been forgotten. And they are typically in areas that are environmentally and economically disadvantaged. They've typically been just these channels through communities that people just kind of ignore. And it just dawned on uh, you know planners within government just, and and state agencies. Oh, look at those! We should look at those. And of course, there were council me- council uh, leaders, uh, city council leaders, and county supervisors that were that were seeing the impacts and and the opportunities. Like yes, it you know there was a revelation on their part that that changes could happen that schools could be you know, it take advantage of bridges going across these waterways so the kids could walk and bike to school, that people could go and stroll along these waterways and sort of that thing that, you know, the, that the, these communities could be woven and brought together by understanding better the issues. Um, And, you know, sometimes they were, of course, What and basically power in power lines going through or metro stops, and literally, it was the back of these uh, communities that now could become sort of much more engaged with this sort of waterway. And what were some of the benefits? Of course, everything from planting a lot of trees, making sure that uh, we address water quality, that we, you know, do bridges and, and sort of have the benefits of habitat creation and uh, really helping people, making nature tangible in the city. Uh, of course, all the water quality benefits accrue to benefits also to the LA River or the San Gabriel or the Rio Hondo, whatever wherever these tributaries end up. So developing um, the community understanding of, of the potential benefits and bringing them together through all sorts of platforms to sort of come to these these arroyos, these washes and understand, wow, yeah, like look at the, the photos, look what we can do.
1: So these uh, tributaries, these distributed waterways, they constitute something over a hundred miles of waterway across the scale of the county. This is an extraordinary, really kind of distributed infrastructure or resource. Are all of these tributaries surficial? Are they still at the surface with water? Or you're suggesting some of them have been canalized, uh, some are really dry Arroyo Seco's during the the dry season. Tell us more about their condition in the communities.
0: Well... Uh, some are channelized and have very little water during the, the dry season. There is, uh, of course, a series uh, and and the condition of the channel can be changed in such a way that it presents itself, you know, with softer surfaces and plant and trees that would typically be seen in in, uh, in a condition like this. To uh, trees that are do well in in a sort of a wet condition, but California doesn't mean wet all the time. It could mean sort of uh, periodically uh, wet, and and the strategy of how to use stormwater or what we call nuisance water, which is the water that comes from the city, from you know basically the lawn, you know from gardens and, and streets and such. The stormwater management piece of this is very much integrated. And the idea is that you would clean the water in parks and in basically walkways and, and other sort of uh, sort of spaces that are being created. And it cleans up and then gets down into this, this tributary. And so you naturalize it as much as possible. And obviously there's engineering uh, limitations and opportunities in doing this work, you you mine the geography and you, for example, can find some gravel pits that are not in use anymore. And then you all of a sudden realize, well, what are they doing? Well, nobody knows what to do with them. Well, let's figure out what we can do to manage water better, especially during a big storm event. And what about if it was a part that gets, you know, basically that dries up, but then gets, can get wet opportunities present themselves. So you're mining for opportunities, essentially.
1: You yourself have really been in a leadership position in this role for many decades, among the earliest advocates in Southern California for the regreening or renaturalization of the Los Angeles River, right? Kind of mid-20th century, single-purpose hydrological engineering uh, infrastructure. If the primary stem of the LA River took decades of advocacy and social kind of advocacy for this project, what's the process or the timeline going forward for realizing the kind of social impact that you imagine from this tributary network?
0: some of these projects are uh, easier to, from a structural perspective, engineering perspective, easier to implement. I see, you know, major changes along some of these corridors in the end of the next 10 years. And so obviously we're in an unusual time and, uh, we'll have to see what they you know what what things bring in the next 6 months but i, I do i do think that there's a, a, a really a paradigm shift and a real understanding and also elected officials or of some of these com- in some of these communities that are very committed to making this change we are a little lagging when it comes to P3s in in southern california what's a, what's a P3 private public partnerships where projects move forward if, if there is a, a synergy and an opportunity for private developers or private you know who are interested in projects to actually contribute and participate in the improvements uh, in the public realm
1: Um, I'm interested in the communities uh, served or accessed by these distributed waterways. I mean, it strikes me that almost by definition, given the nature of a distributed, you know, kind of um, watershed network, these tributaries must touch every manner of community, every class, every racial or ethnic group. So tell us about the particularities. Just as a model, the notion of looking at a geological or a hydrological network, would somehow by definition bring you up to and encountering almost every community in the county, no?
0: Yes. And uh, some of these communities in the San Gabriel River waterways, it, some of the areas are less dense, but you, you do find residential areas more commercial and industrial areas. But there is a passion for you know uh, cycling and, and sort of jogging and walking, you know, all forms of ways of taking advantage of these uh, linear pathways, so to speak, and connections to the mountains. Some of these communities are Asian American communities, uh, like lat- Latino communities. One of the waterways, for example, goes through, goes underground for a while, then surfaces right next to uh, one of our Fairplex, which is the county uh, agricultural and uh, horse exhibit areas that that were developed a lot in the 1940s and 50s. And one that's being sort of reconceptualized. So they will be able to take advantage of the waterway as it goes through and as they develop a park that's more uh, 360 days of the year, as opposed to a park that just gets open for special events. And then in the Northern San Fernando Valley, you end up through communities that are very, a a number of them are through communities that are Latino communities that were, where there was a lot of infrastructure for some of the freeways that were built. And so you ended up with sort of, you end up with a morass of, of highway underpasses and overpasses. And so, part of the goal has been, how do you connect them again? What is it that you can do to connect them again? How, you know, what kind of urban design solutions can we find?
1: Los Angeles County, of course, is an enormous political jurisdiction, uh, almost 5,000 square miles, over 10 million residents. Uh, home to some dozens and dozens of municipalities. Given that these waterways touch on almost every manner of lived experience across the county, it strikes us as a remarkably effective uh, lens. As you mentioned, Mia, this was project was in part related to a larger study, a planning effort. Tell us about that planning effort, both your role in it. I know there was a larger team involved, but I uh, understand it was built in, in large part on your experience, which has been in, in many ways building consensus from communities on up uh, politically as opposed to imposing uh, top-down plans?
0: I would like to clarify that the county it has, over the last five, eight years, really uh, sort of has it, its own sustainability office. And the sustainability officer is a very sort of forward-thinking me- uh, planner who uh, has seen the opportunity and not... Um, shied away from the complexity. Of course, one had to have a buy-in from stakeholders, and this this is something that I think in you know California is uh, a very very much a, a sort of part of the any any kind of process. It's just that the the amount of time that was de- that was dedicated to actually helping people understand what planning a planning effort of this magnitude really meant and how they could engage you know it's oftentimes when you're dealing with community participation or what i actually prefer to call stakeholder participation people get the impression or you know some of us who lead these meetings can potentially give the impression that whatever you want you're going to get but it's so much more complicated than that so what you want to do is use help people understand the issues so just because when you're you know you really want parks in your neighborhood or you want many more trees you have to understand what are some of the complexities in your neighborhood and and how do you how do you translate that in more into the more common good and a, a better way of people participating and understanding the realities? So I think that in, in the way this process was sort of, um, uh, let's say, parsed out in in different areas of interest where there was transportation, education, um, environmental factors uh, that related to water and air, and then peeling people apart and then peel and putting them back together in a room so that uh, they, they could understand the opportunities and the magnitude. When we first started, uh, there was groups meeting about why isn't the county water management happening by virtue of, of looking at each watershed separately? Why is it by county elected officials and so it took some education for me because you know, a poor guy managing water had sometimes had a, had a watershed that belonged to three or four different county supervisors. How do you manage that? So just the thought that water was what was important, not the electoral, you know. And then how do you do that in a way that everybody is, understands the issues? I went a couple of times to the National Organization of Water and I, the Water Alliance, And they all started talking about how can we start telling, you know, this story about water. And they came up with the construct of calling it one water. So it's like one county, one water. And then we helped them develop a graphic of what does that mean? You know, the water that falls and how do you hold it? How do you, you know, put it in the aquifer and how does, how do you think about this as a system that's, you know, on that it's an ongoing system. So all I, that riff is to say that there is sort of a deep bench of engineers and water advocates that address not just, you know, the county as a, as a landmass, but also the ocean in a very deep way. You know, people are really sort of very entrenched uh, and uh, sort of passionate about what goes on beyond their own, you know, their own selves. I've focused a lot in California because it's it's such a complicated big place and culturally fascinating to me, just the richness of uh, it, you know the cultures and immigration, and uh, a Mediterranean landmass that from the bi- Mediterranean biome that I have learned to really appreciate
1: we've been focusing on your advocacy on behalf of uh, natural systems and waterways in relationship to community planning and advocating on behalf of ecological performance and integrating that into the life of the city. I know that your practice and your colleagues at Studio MLA are engaged in a really a, an array, a diverse array of different kinds of projects and I want to speak to you a little bit about those other projects. I know that in addition to the occasional, you know, pr- private commission, you're also engaged in park design work, the uh, LA County Natural History Museum, uh, a range of other projects across a diverse portfolio, including um, more recently, Sports Stadia. I, I know you've been involved with your group at Dodger Stadium and more recently at SoFi, the new the new football arena in Southern California. So just, just give our listeners a, a sense of the, the overview of the, of the portfolio in the studio these days, because I think you know, you're quite, I think, well-known and quite articulate on behalf of the advocacy for the social and ecological life of everyday spaces. And you, your work has really been testament to that. But But I see in your practice a much wider array of commitments as well that I think our audience would be interested to learn about.
0: And I I always uh, speak uh, about uh, how design has incredible value to advocate. So advocacy by design. We have been doing work uh, in stadiums. And it was, you know, a, a, a really wonderful sort of set of circumstances that led us to, uh, to Dodger Stadium, um, a stadium that, of course, sits proudly in the middle of a park. And uh, it was all about really starting to understand the edges of the, of the stadium per se, that although nestled into a beautiful uh, site. Uh, was very much about the car. And then you were in the stadium, you funneled right through. So how do you deal with the, you know, there was a recognition that there had to be a better integration of the, and a better experience and more opportunities to to socialize and to to come together. I had grown up with soccer in Central America. I, I had never been to a baseball game. Um, And what I found was this incredible passion and multi-generational, multicultural sort of experience. And I was struck um, and it became really clear as we were working with the ownership that that the opportunities were tremendous. And over a five-year period, we basically were able to create a series of civic spaces all around the edges Um, in the perimeter of the stadium, such that there is now, you know, all these sort of a plethora of ways of coming into the stadium and enjoying um, the game, but enjoying the pregame and the, you know, and now, of course, the last phase, nobody's been able to enjoy yet, but they will
1: And while we might think of a baseball stadium as a venue for the work of the landscape architect, um, I think uh, Mia, your 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 work and, and that of your team at Dodger Stadium is is an extraordinary example of a public venue. You know, I mean, for those of you that don't know, Dodger Stadium uh built in um in the early 60s opened in uh, 1962 it's the third oldest baseball stadium in the country and a great example of a kind of mid-century modernism but open to the environment in this mediterranean climate of of southern california and your work has been on the one hand yes to refresh it to provide new venue both inside outside particularly on the kind of threshold between being inside the action and outside the action, but also to ennoble uh, the experience of arrival, to orient oneself, but also to provide kind of pleasure and pleasurable moments, but in a way, very deftly also mindful of this work as as a kind of historic uh, conservation site now i mean this is this, this ballpark is revered and is on the one hand kind of fragile right so tell us more about the planning work and the kind of detailed design work because i've experienced uh, these spaces and they are extraordinary in no way detracting from the kind of historic character of the place but really augmenting it.
0: yes thank you for your beautiful description of the the experience of this indoor outdoor southern california and yes 360 days of the year blue sky maybe 345 uh, that is uh, very much a part of when you're sitting you know when you go to dodger stadium you are you know, you, you're you in the city, but you're completely sort of re- removed, surrounded by these lovely hills filled with palm trees around you, and you're able to disconnect. One of the things was how to give everybody a, a, a wonderful experience. It was very much in the past about sort of the it, it was either the bleachers or the really kind of fancier seating. And now there is uh, something for everyone. And there is, you know, these, uh, these arrival points that are, you know, you have these choices. You can choose to have beer and dogs on, in one area, or you can decide to have Italian food, or you can decide to have tacos or sushi. And each of these spaces are you know, different. And you also have some speakeasies and many of the spaces underneath the bleachers that weren't being used before are now being sort of absorbed uh, for the fans to come and to look at some, uh, some of the exhibits of, you know, in some interactive sort of games. And uh, also that you have a peekaboo as the, in the pregame, as the the teams are practicing, which makes it so exciting. And I'll say a little story about when there was a moment when we were doing the construction and there was always a lot of palm trees, right? So Vince Scully would always talk about three sisters, three palm trees in view of the camera when he was talking. So we had to move the three sisters.
1: Really? Did did Vin know about this?
0: Well, Vin showed up one day. The thing was in construction, and the three sisters weren't there. We had not explained to him everything that was going on, but the fact was that it became one of the first. It was about six, seven years ago. And you know, we already were doing um, you know online activity, and everybody freaked out. Like, where the hell? The Dodgers killed the three sisters. But of course, thankfully, the, Do- the, the three sisters were lying down um, in one of the parking lots. And although we were going to put fresher ones, we decided to prepack, the three sisters came back. Uh, but they had to live without the three sisters for you know
1: a few months. There's no more durable image in sport than for 67 years, Vin Scully as the voice of the Dodgers beginning in Brooklyn. And then, you know, through 2016 in Los Angeles, in the press box at Dodger stadium with that view that's been the same for a half a century, it hasn't changed. And then the three sisters are missing. Mia, do you have thoughts about, or do you have other things to say about the, the role of the iconic palm more generally in Southern California as an image of the city of Los Angeles?
0: Palms make me happy. Palms, make LA what it is, you know, even uh, it's, I've, we had for some time, a palm brigade, a group of people were advocating for palms because there, there was a movement afoot to malign palms because they weren't, you know, they didn't provide for habitat, but any habitat benefits or the fronds fell down occasionally on cars or they weren't native to California. And we had come up with a const, you know, sort of this argument that basically, and, and this is an argument, one of my friends who was with the Sierra club used to tell me is, you know, what they are, they offer is they offer purchase for some birds in Southern California. You know, obviously, these large urban expanses are creating major problems. So having that perch up on top as they migrate is really important. But also, uh, they require very little water. Their roots are very shallow. And you could always do, especially on streets, you could always do two or three palms and then a shade tree, two or three palms and then a shade tree, a native shade tree. I would say that palm trees are to Los Angeles what the Eiffel Tower is to Paris, so there.
1: In addition to your work at Dodger Stadium, um, you and your team have been recently engaged in the the, the monumental construction of SoFi Stadium, this extraordinary extraordinary facility uh, housing both uh, both of uh, Los Angeles' professional football teams. Uh, Tell us about your work uh, at SoFi.
0: We actually been working on Hollywood Park, the reinvention of a racetrack, which is over 250 acres, for 14 years. But you know, by the time we were engaged, we were basically we came in with HKS, the architects, after the planning of the the project had been approved by the City of Englewood, the specific plan. You know, it was just a new brief, right? We had more acreage, and we could add this this important uh, new use. So, as we were looking at um, the stadium within the site, and uh, one of the uh, the conversations and and in the workshops with the architects, we we realized that there was the ability to create this very in Southern California sort of. Uh, place with a lot of indoor outdoor experiences that, you know, sort of where where you could blend the building and the landscape in a very beneficial way. And that you could work on allowing for these connections year round. And so it's 80 feet on the ground. It sits low. For us, the transitions into the stadium and also the perimeter And then a lake became this incredible canvas for sort of this indoor outdoor relationships, this sort of really rich sort of it's it's sort of, it is very much like Dodger Stadium. Of course, it has a a very beautiful sort of roof structure over the main part of the, the stadium, but it's open on the sides and the gardens sort of weave through it in and out. As we were looking at the, you know, sort of the underpinnings for the work and starting to think about plant material and, you know, we came up with the notion of of the Mediterranean biome. So starting to look at the trees, especially, but all the shrubs and others that would do well in Southern California, which turns out to be all of them because it's all about how much rainwater you you know these what they have in common is the relationship to the ocean, all these land masses, right the Mediterranean, Chile, California, the Australia. So there's all these conditions longitudinally latitudinally and in terms of the relationship to the ocean, the amount of rain. So there we were we had like this incredible uh, sort of uh, selection of plant material to use. And lo and behold, we started looking to see, could we find them? Our Alcarias or the Chilean wine palm or any number. And, you know, believe it or not, it's not like we imported anything, but we found a lot of the plant material. And uh, we developed with, oops, a Mediterranean biome botanical garden. We have a lake that's five and a half acres. We have the gardens as you move through that are actually have labels like, you know, you're in a botanical garden, you know, it's a very, um, very welcoming and uh, the very easy tr- to navigate uh, and meant to be open to the community. The edges are when there aren't games or other performances. Inglewood sofa is going to be one of the uh, Olympic uh, sort of the, opening closing ceremony sites for the Olympics in 2028. So we're ready for the Olympics.
1: another continuity that I see across the work, uh, not just in the stadia portfolio or museums or, or parks is often you mentioned the impervious surface that you're encountering, you're working in sites beginning as early as the LA River advocacy work all the way through more recently. You're dealing with a history of impervious surfaces, asphalt, concrete, and often your work is trying to capture, slow down, absorb as much of that ambient uh, moisture as possible, as much water as possible.
0: Well, and I think uh, on all these projects, um, how the community is going to engage and benefit and whether it's on, you know, with Crenshaw or SoFi or with SoFi, we had tens and tens and tens and tens of meetings with the community before, you know, just explaining what these park opportunities were, what the lake would be like. And, uh, you know, among the things we learned, for example, that all the kids didn't have anywhere to go biking. So they would learn how to bike on parking lots and in, in some of these retail centers. And, you know, the, the, the fact that here, they're going to have a place and actually they have so much space that there's going to have to be creative ways of uh, sort of doing art projects, doing puppetry, doing informal music, jazz performances. How do you engage the community and the, the soul of the community and all you know the possible in the same way that you might have it in Harvard Square or, you know, in a sort of an urban plaza somewhere else. How do you make that happen until the housing is really completed in that general area? How do you make it so that it's a welcoming place? How do you use this space to help people? But, you know, when people, when the guy who does all the, um, he's the head of operations for the stadium. I, I noticed that his new, his title is you know, sort of the the director of campus operations. And I said, Russ, campus? He said, yeah, this is a campus. You know, I thought we were we were doing a building, and you gave us a campus.
1: You've been upgraded from a building. You now have a campus. That's that's fantastic. So, Mia, you you mentioned um, the role of SOFI will play in the forthcoming LA Olympics. Uh, you were already in LA, if I have this right, uh, in the in, in the famous 1984 Olympic experiment, and I'm told this had quite a lot to do with bringing to Los Angeles. A, a self-awareness of the city as a venue for urban design or a sense of civic aspiration. Was there anything about that experience you wanted to share with us?
0: Well, I mean, I was there as a a very, uh, you know, in early transplant, I think that what became really obvious in, in retrospect was how little you actually have to do to make things right. Looking back, you know, it felt like the city was shining as you know, it, it didn't feel disruptive. It didn't, you know, didn't feel, typically in, in Olympic games, people feel like, oh, they spent all this money for this thing. But I will say that in this, this set of, and so I, I just remember very, um, it was all extremely positive, right? The Olympics was, that was such a well-run Olympic that it left a legacy of funds. That are still to this day, the 1984 fund actually gives, disperses a lot of sort of grants to young or, uh, student organizations that do sports. I mean, a lot. And so they've managed that really well.
1: So at that point, 1984 Olympics, the, the famous story of the, of the Olympic experience with a surplus at the end also had this catalyzing effect. Many urbanists, architects, landscape artists I speak with, it had this effect of um, rendering Los Angeles something as a, a civic and urban entity for, for many, many people. So you had only recently then moved to Los Angeles. What drew you to Los Angeles? How, how did you choose to you know, come to think of you know, Southern California as the venue for your career?
0: I married a, an architect that was at the GST at the same time as I was, who was from Southern California, Michael
1: Lair. Were you and Michael um, unique in that generation? Like, were your classmates moving to Southern California? Were you? Was it an obvious choice for you? Uh, I guess you're saying that you chose him more so than the city.
0: Yes, although I was very happy to leave the East Coast. I really didn't like the muggy weather and the snow, as it turns out. Well, Pete and Peter Walker and Martha Schwartz, you know, of course, were from the Bay Area. I had a number of classmates like George Hargraves, Kathy Blake and others that moved to Northern California. I had a few classmates that moved to Southern California. You know, it was, uh, There were some opportunities with some, remember it was a, not a very good time in the economy, right? It was a slowdown. So some of the firms, like at the time, it's a firm that's been absorbed by Sasaki, but it was POD, a few graduates from the GSD who were there, um, SWA, of course. So there, there were some firms offering jobs that weren't, you know, the East Coast. It seemed like a, I, I would say that in 10, 15 years later, there were many more people coming, but I, it felt like a good place to be.
1: And in, in, in making that choice and in arriving in Los Angeles at this point in time, could you characterize what was the, the state of landscape architecture like in the city as a, as a profession or as a culture?
0: It was sleepy. I think there was more energy in, um, in sort of uh, sort of the, in terms of some of the master plan communities in like Orange County and in perimeters, in the suburban areas, uh, downtown wasn't being paid attention to at all. It was before the Getty. I think I would say that by the nineties, things had changed dramatically. Things were like really amping up. And so there was, you know, more cultural, you know, there was a growth all of a sudden um, and you felt it, you know, you felt energy uh, at that point. Uh, I started out in LA uh, working with people in the industry and one of the projects was for Joel Silver of Matrix and then another one was uh, with uh, Bob Zemeckis these you know people in that industry were very they operated at such a different level of the, just their their imagination and can do everything could happen right you could move magic you, know, you could move dirt like you could move things you could make things at one point <laughs> I said, uh, with Joel, uh, I said that, you know, you don't need that much lawn. What do you need so much lawn for? And he says to me, well, what else would you do? I said, well, I would put a sculpture. Well, what sculpture would you put? Like, he asked me, right? And I say, well, I think a Sarah would look really good there. And before I know it, he's calling Sarah and he's bringing a Sarah in you know, and that's when I started getting interested in like, oh, I got to do some other things too, right? And I use them as for advocacy myself. I mean, you know, in my work with Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Chris Guest, you know, with, we used to talk a lot about um, sustainability and and being mindful of our impact on the land. And so with time, they also became supporters and advocates, but that's when I met also uh, Lewis McAdams from the Friends of the LA River, and then started helping him sort of understand what he was getting himself into beyond writing poetry about the river. He had been an English uh, teacher and uh, at the school that Garcetti, uh, that Eric Garcetti had been a student at high school. Anyway, so it all sort of started coming together uh, as I started sort of delving in and realizing, oh, you know, what uh, the background I have from the GSD is in landscape architecture, things that people, it's how we materialize the solutions that makes it tangible for not only for advocates, but for the elected officials. You know, they can go open a park, you know, that's valuable. We did five sponsored studios bringing the people like Lewis and some of the, the people in the state agencies to the GSD to comment on the projects was unbelievably valuable just in terms of them understanding you know, the academy and you know, the process that we go through uh, in design school.
1: If we think about where you see your practice going, What do you see as the opportunities, the big challenges confronting your practice going forward? What do you imagine yourself doing over the coming decades?
0: I'd I'd like to have the community uh, engage in the spaces that we design. I think in terms of the future and what I see, I'm really looking forward to the next generation in my firm. I know there are some fantastically talented people in the office, many of people who I have also... Been transferring energy in in their and and encouraging them to participate um, uh, sort of as in our advocacy work. It also means you have to participate and be disciplined. If you become a member of a certain organization, whatever organization that is, that you are you know regularly participate and you're an important member and you represent the design field in that particular set of circumstances. So I would like to work less. I'd like to, I have some grandchildren and uh, I'd like to, you know, like I'm just embarking on a very interesting project for the Berggruen Institute up in the hills. And then I've been contacted by an amazing group out of Europe who wants to do a, a similar project in one of the countries in Europe that faces the Mediterranean. I look forward to the conversations with my team about some of what they want to do, and I want to choose one or two projects that I'll be completely focused on. The projects that are coming up are really amazing projects. I mean, it's it's. It, I mean, I don't know what I, I'd like to say that there's some possibility of a the construction of a LA River project before I. Get to be a hundred, but that's no guarantee. So it might be, it might be in, in other
1: in other places in the world. Mia, do, do you find that your staff, especially your entry level team, obviously they're you know they're drawn to work with you and your team by virtue of the decades of success that you've had and the extraordinary work you're doing? Do you find that they're bringing this same passion, the same commitment to public work, and this notion of? societal impact through design. I mean, and as you've said, you have to churn up. You, you can't simply, you know, uh, show up on occasion when you need something. That's a long commitment. Do you find that the landscape architects and the designers that you recruit and hire to your studio, do they, do they share that commitment?
0: Yes, actually. Um, I think they come here for that, but they don't know what it really... I mean, I think, first of all, this generation, you know, of the... The people graduating from 2010 on, or earlier, even 2000 on, were starting to get very interested in, you know, sort of uh, social impact. And you know, I make it very clear. Okay, do you want to do water, or do you want to do fire, or do you want to do both? And then, you know, you get jobs. You know, you get like responsibilities. And we've now had to codify how many hours we, you know, like they get like, I don't know, 50, 60 hours a year during the week. Beyond that, it's on them. Like if they're gonna have, you know, like one of the women is on the uh, LA city forestry uh, committee. Like they talk about forestry across the city. I mean, she
1: loves it. Do I understand this correctly? So does this mean uh, your studio is supporting hundreds or thousands of hours of your staff time paid to effectively join these processes,
0: yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, it's uh, my goal is to to make sure that the team understands the process whereby you can be impactful, that they bring value, and I think they're. You, we've seen the results of people sort of meeting, interesting people going to interesting conferences, coming back and you know feed, giving us feedback. One of them went to a soil symposium, which I was blown away by because it turns out that healthy soils helps with fire mitigation. So that's a whole other story. We're actually pulling, you know, we're going to be um, encouraging a conversation with Caltech. The Institute of the Environment and uh, Tree People, the organization I've been working with, to start cross pollinating on those issues, and so it's uh, you know it it just accrues to this uh, energy. And I was recently interviewing someone who I wanted to hire, and I and I asked her like I said, if you come here, you have to realize that this is some of what we do is this, that, and that. Oh yeah, I'm on the. Coastal Commission of her town. Like I said, okay, well, you should put that on your resume.
1: <laughs> Mia Lair, thanks so very much for joining us.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Cesare S. Barber, Charlie Gilnard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit
1: fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.